What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able to get that from Ironswick because you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up. North, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah, so I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both there is. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. Well, you're sipping... Cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over Gallivanting. The <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Yeah, we're still in ISO. Yeah, I'm at my house here at your house. Yeah. I feel like I've stopped even playing it. It's, yeah, it's I know. obvious at this point. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you had a conversation with Uncle Bobby Sapolsky. I did have a conversation with Uncle Bobby, something that I never, ever thought would happen in my lifetime. But you can dream and dreams come true. So tell us what happened. Let me preface mm. by I have a newborn and so I am not up through the night for the ISAP conference. I'll watch the replays at a later date. I haven't seen anything about it except the screenshot that you shared. So tell me all about it. Well, Uncle Bobby, Robert Sapolsky, Professor Robert Sapolsky, if you don't mind, 
was the keynote speaker for the IACP on the opening day. And through good fortune, the board elected me to do the interview with him, to introduce him, and then also to follow up with some questions from myself and from the, the members. Look, to be honest, I wasn't incredibly happy with my introduction because we were trying to work out technology. I didn't actually know that I was on the screen at the time. It was the first day. It was a bit glitchy and you know, I sort of, I'm sitting there and I'm getting everything ready and Linda, who's behind the scenes, goes, oh, Glenn, you're live. And I'm going, oh, oh, oh. so <laughs> that could have been done better. However, he was great. I mean, it's Robert Sapolsky. He knows what he's talking about. And he really went into a lot about the subject matter that we've discussed on the podcast before. And we asked him questions about dopamine and so forth. But one great area that he really covered, which I was really pleased about, was epigenetics and how in utero it can affect the growth and the development of puppies and so forth, which was a really nice conversation. So is he aware of his influence in the dog training community? No. Yeah, right. So was he speaking primates or was he did he speak puppies specifically? Like did he do some research knowing that he was talking to the International Association Canine Professionals? Did he make some bridge between what he normally does to dogs or how did that go down? That's a good question because in the time that I was gushing all over him, I managed to slip in that, are you aware of the influence you have in the canine community? I said, I bet you think, why would these people want to hear me talk? And he said, look, I'm a primatologist and my background is in human neurology. So Mm. he said, I haven't studied canines in my field. He said, you know, I'm aware of certain genes, like they've got genes that make their eyebrows go up and down and so forth. And he said, but dogs aren't my strong suit. Really the study of the brain is and how Mm. the brain correlates with certain actions and behaviors. And yeah, he went into discussions about free will, how he just doesn't believe in free will. And um, yeah, so that was interesting. You can tell that it kind of perplexes him at the same time. So even though the study shows him that free will, well, in his terms, it doesn't exist. You can tell that he's not totally convinced about it and is perplexed about that point in itself. So I Uh. think that in time, he has suggested that he's still looking into it and it's ongoing research and primarily watch this space. Really interesting, right? So I, I listen to a lot of Sam Harris stuff, or I used to, mm. and he doesn't believe in free will. He thinks that you know, you're just a slave to your brain chemistry and that you're not actually making any decisions. But then I think when people feel so strongly that way, and that's fine, yeah, and they know more about any of that shit that I'll ever know, you know, than neuroscientists. Mm. But I think- no longer believe in free will, you also lose the ability to feel, you know, get angry at people Mm. or hold grudges at people. And then of course you can put an extra layer onto that and say, well, you don't have the ability to choose how you feel. You feel the way that you're programmed to feel like you can cycle it back around. But I think that when you say there's no such thing as free will because you're a slave to your genetics and your electrical inputs and brain chemistry and blah, 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 all those things, there could be two reasons I think people say it. One is that very scientific approach and the other maybe is the a bit more ethereal sort of approach that your stars are written, right? Like there's a destiny or something like that. Mm. But either way, you kind of, I think, lose the ability to complain about someone else's actions or hold them even accountable for their actions if you don't believe in free will of actions, right? So when something's outside my control, I can't be held accountable for it. And if you're saying that I don't have free will, then what I have done is outside of my control, right? 
that's a heavy topic. It is a really heavy topic. You're right. And it confuses me a little bit when I hear much smarter people than myself who have spent and pursued a lifetime of study and education around it, because I primarily believe that that's what separates us from lower form animals, that we have the ability of free will, where we're not acting entirely on impulse all the time, that we can watch something, analyze it, and then come up with a solution around it. However, when you hear some of these people talk, who was the person that you were referencing before? Sam Harris. Sam Harris. So he's a scientist as well, but he has a meditation app. He has a podcast. He's a very interesting guy. I spent a long time consuming a lot of his stuff before I just kind of got to that point where he was really mean to someone. And I was like, hey, man, you're breaking your own sort of tenets here. You're holding that person accountable for their actions when you're saying they don't have free will. Like you, you've talked yourself into a corner and I just, he's way smarter than me and could paint me into a corner mentally as well. But I just thought, uh, I've had enough there. Yeah, it's kind of funny how sometimes people that you have a love and a following for, sometimes they can have such a massive contradiction sometimes and you'll think, wait a minute, that's not the narrative that you've been leading with the whole time. To be honest, it was quite funny. I did chuckle over it. There was a review that came in. I think I've mentioned it before. There was a review that came in a while ago that said Glenn contradicts himself constantly on the show. I know I contradict myself. Like I change, <laughs> I, I, I change my mind readily. I go with things that make me feel happy at the time or yeah. things that I feel a, a more intelligent decision. And sometimes I'll go down a path of experimentation with something and then I'll go backwards again. For example, when I originally tried to incorporate myself into the plus R community during that brief period of time, I thought this is the way to do it now. I've been in the balance slash compulsion training vacuum for a period. Sorry? Fraternity? Yeah, fraternity. Yeah, I've been in that that fraternity for a period of time. And then I thought, well, maybe they're right. Maybe they're onto something. This is something that I need to be more pursuant of because it must be the future of training. Look, it still may be, but it just didn't sit with me. I don't know for what for whatever reasons, and this is going to lead into our topic that we actually have for today, but it didn't sit with me that I could be effective that was the thing that kept troubling me. And that was the thing that kept putting the brakes on for me is that I really couldn't be as effective as I needed to be. Mm. Again, you know, like I've come under fire and people have, have reached out to me personally. We've had good, peaceful conversations over it. And I've had criticism over it before that I didn't stay in it long enough and I didn't give it time and I was a quitter and so forth. And I kind of thought you're entitled to your opinion and I'm entitled to change my mind. We've referenced that several times is that we will change our mind on things. Sometimes we'll follow a certain type of narrative and then we'll change it. And then we're entitled to change again back to where we were if we're not satisfied that this is right for us or for the environment that we're working in or the community that we're serving or whatever it may be, you are entitled and you're welcome to change your mind. And that's, I guess, when you're talking about the subject matter of free will, (laughs) that's where I have trouble believing that free will is not something that we have control over and that we're just a a slave to our genetics and slave to our impulses and so forth is where a lot of these scientists are coming off. This is where their thinking process comes off is that, you know, like impulses happen in the environment and the brain just reacts to it. And that's what drives our behavior. So effectively we're a sophisticated monkey. Maybe that inner narrative inside our head is the brain itself reacting to impulses and saying, Hey, you need to do this. Like, I know you're going to try and resist against it, but motherfucker, we're going down this path. I think there's a difference between 
contradicting yourself and changing your mind. Yeah, you know, you're free to change your mind based on new information that would be in total contradiction to how you used to feel, but that's a mind change, right? Mm. So like it's almost like there's sort of micro and macro contradictions and the micro ones about the specifics of how you would do something, that's usually just kind of changing your mind, I think. But the macro, the bigger can be contradiction in like how you feel about like say, you know, we, we want to talk about punishment today to say that it does or does not work would be a contradiction in yourself. And that you say that if you are a balanced trainer and you use punishment and then you are fine with it to say that punishment does not work would be contradicting yourself. But to say, I no longer want to use it would not be contradicting yourself. That would be changing your mind. Mm. And then I think that for me sort of feels like the difference between a micro contradiction, which would just be changing your mind and a macro contradiction would be like a total change of heart, on it or just saying the opposite of what you feel. Really, that's more of a contradiction, I think, when you say one thing and do another. Yeah, that's a good point. It often leads me to thinking with those points in in regards to micro and macro, it often leads me to when you watch the behavior of a person and you think that they're going to do or they're going to perform a certain type of outcome and, you know, like it's all leading up to exactly what you think should happen and how they're going to respond and you know, the person has kind of been groomed into performing a certain way. And then suddenly they just go, no, I'm not doing that. I'm doing something mm. entirely different. And, you know, it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and it's it's one of those cliffhanger points where it just goes in a direction that you just entirely didn't expect it to happen. And I've had performances like that in, in my own behavior where people have gone, really, you're going to not do all this? It's kind of like all the stars led to this alignment and now all of a sudden you're changing your mind and going away from this. Like what the fuck mm. is going through your mind? It's a heavy topic and one that I profess that I don't know much about. You know, free will. Yeah, is- we didn't prep for it all. <laughs> it's just, We're just riffing. Just a spur of the moment, super deep conversation about the very essence of life. Considering that Robert Sapolsky and I are now best friends and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> so hang on, let's let's close that out. So you introed him, then he gave his presentation, and mm. then you got to ask some questions afterwards, sort of on behalf of the audience. Is that that would happen? Yeah. So the audience put forward some really good questions, and there were some really good questions there. And I could see that he was going, "Oh yeah, yeah." He was enthusiastic, and he was approaching the questions with gusto, which was nice. And him and I got to riff a little bit about. I wanted to talk to him about the relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala because he did bring up that subject matter, which was interesting that he was primarily saying when you're viewing the environment, your amygdala is already peeing on things that makes it fearful and, and worried. And it's already starting to create rhythm in the brain like, oh, there's something over there that you need to be aware of, but you're not even aware of it yet. But your amygdala, it's kind of like the precursor for the behavior coming because it's already starting to warm up the engine, so to speak, and saying, I've just seen something in the environment I'm worried about. And you're not even conscious about it. But because it's, you know, and we know this about brain behavior because we deal with the conscious and the subconscious all the time when we're in training, when we're going in between classical and operant conditioning, where there are certain things that we're aware of and we have choices in the performance of behaviors. And there's other things which are reflexive, which after a period of time, it's been conditioned into us. And suddenly we find that we're performing a behavior and we're thinking, holy shit, that just happened on the turn of a dime. Mm. Uh, That was interesting when he started talking about that. And the other point 
which we have talked about and it's in his book Behave because I referenced that to him several times, nerding out to him as I was and sucking up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I read your book. Can you please sign it? I said, look, I've read the book and listened to it over three times. And he kind of laughed and I said, look, to be honest, for me, I needed to. I said, you can tell that you've got this amazing relationship with the brain and you've broken it down and made it really relatable that people like myself can understand it. But even then, And I said, when you get into discussions, like when he starts to abbreviate things like the PFC and prefrontal cortex, and he starts to really break down and get elaborative on some of these relationships, it's intense. And you can tell it's something that he has a passion and a love for, and he's been very pursuant over it over many years. But for you and me and probably many of our listeners who are not involved in neuroplasticity and neurosciences and so forth, for us, it's very intense. That's normal because we just haven't done the years of incremental study that have given us access and the information around that. It doesn't mean that we're not capable of doing that. I mean, at any stage in your life, you can realign your stars and you can go after different things and you can be pursuant of things that make you feel happy or make you feel complete or make you interested, like Norell, for argument's sake. I mean, Norell has gone from being a scientist in plant pathology into natural health for people and pets, funnily enough. Getting back on to the subject of what Robert was talking about with the amygdala and the relationship between the two of them, We did riff a little bit backwards and forwards about how glucocorticoids, which is the cortisol hormone, can affect the growth of the brain, can stunt the brain, reduce it in size, specifically reduce the capacity of things like the prefrontal cortex and start enlarging the amygdala and having a profound effect on what you are now instead of what you could have been. So you don't have the potential to be largely in control of your decisions when you've already damaged a section of your brain and that's not your fault let's talk about puppies when they're in utero and inside the female and suddenly that female dog is getting excessive amounts of stress well that's passing through the umbilical cord into the puppies into their brain so their brain has already been affected and he did which i really appreciated he did really get into epigenetics which he was talking about how the long-term effect of certain changes in behavior to the parents will then create switches in their genes which will then pass it on to puppies and therefore you've got a complete mutation in the line so things that you saw in grandparents and you're going why aren't i getting these in my puppies well your nutrition is shit Your environment has been terrible. The bitch line for two generations has been very stressed. And suddenly this is transformative in who the puppies become and the identity that they now take on. Yeah. Those sort of things are absolutely fascinating to me. And and that's why I am a huge advocate of books like Behave. And I haven't read Why Zebras Get Ulcers, but I'm going to. Have you read it? No. It's on my list of to-do things. Like I've got a list of 15 books that I, I really want to get through. And right now I'm I'm reading the book Atomic Habits, which I would encourage people to pick up and read, especially if you want to improve your to-do list, basically. It's not just about work life, it's about personal life as well. Again, he even goes into the author of Atomic Habits, who is eluding my mind at the moment, but he even goes into the incremental changes of what you need to do on a daily basis to make sure that you're steering away from the habits that you do have and moving into new habits that you want to create. It's not new information, but he has worded it specifically that you can be more relatable and he's giving you a a roadmap to show you how you can do it. So a lot of authors do this in their books. I just find that this book, he's backing up the claims quite well. He's making it very accessible. I definitely think it's a book that dog trainers, 
in specific should have a look at. Casey mm. Casey and I had a chat because they've got a little book club going on in Clubhouse that they, I mm. think it's called the- Turtle Tits. Turtle Tits, yeah. Turtle Tits Book Club, yeah. which is hilarious itself. Where this came from, because I said to him, where the fuck did Turtle Tits come from? And I think somebody in the group, because I've got a group of people that regularly meet together, which is beautiful, but they've got these group of people. And so I think someone said toodaloo or something like that. And someone said, what did you say? Turtle tits. And <laughs> from that, <laughs> from that spawned the Turtle Tits book club on. I've wondered where that came from, actually. Yeah, well, I, I had to ask. I was too curious about where the name Turtle Tits came from. So I was in there one night and I said, where did it come from? That's where it came from. So Casey and I were chatting about that. Yeah, he revealed where the name came from. So I thought it was very funny, but they're a good little group. They're helping to educate each other. They're reading books to each other on development and even just to have a bit of fun and a bit of fellowship with each other, which is really great. It's funny to see how that's what's happened to Clubhouse. Like there's still a lot of the like, look at me rooms, you know, because I'm not really in there very much because my app doesn't work off of Wi-Fi. So it's very limited access. When I I was in there a lot, it was because I was just in the car listening, right? But now it doesn't work when I'm off Wi-Fi. But so it started out, all the dog trainer stuff that I was in was these very like, I'm on the stage and I'm the one talking. And and now it seems to have, people have like collected into little groups and are just having these meetups, these hangouts, which I think was probably more in the spirit of that app. And certainly it's, it's, it's working great for those people. Well, the one thing that happened, which I wasn't convinced it would happen, but it actually did happen, was that you're just recycling a lot when you're actually having verbal conversations with people online. And which is why I dropped off from clubhouses because, you know, you can only, you, and you usually get the same amount of people and you, you kind of find that you're recycling your stories and it's just the same rhetoric over and over again. Um, and I, you know, I found that I was telling the same stories to the same people. And I, I thought to myself, I'm actually getting sick of hearing myself telling the same story. And <laughs> and I thought other people are probably getting sick of hearing it too. So I dropped off occasionally every now and then. And it's a time thing as well. Like I'm putting pursuits into other things that are taking up energy and time at the moment. It's not that I don't appreciate it. It's not that I don't appreciate those little pockets of people because there are times where I'll get on and I'll just sit back and listen to them talking. And I find that not only some good fun fellowship, but there's also some interesting subject matter that comes up that's non-dog related. It's just life related yeah. through people who are good people and I like and respect. Hmm. Prior to me speaking to my new best friend, Robert Sapolsky. Personal friend, yes. My close personal friend. We had a panel with Janet Edwards, Michael Ellis and Patrick Lockett. Oh, yeah. Patrick, who's a sponsor of our show through House Amberg. Mm-hmm. I had to drop that one for old Patrick Lockett. So, yeah, we had a panel with them in regards to a new project that we're putting together, which we actually did a session on called Calling All Dog Sports. So we, we meaning the IACP, are formulating a new committee in pursuant to protection sports. It came from a seed that you sown quite some time ago, and I think you and John Imler and me and several others have digested this over a period of time and now it's come to fruition so in good spirits to that we sort of got together a group which was like i said michael ellis me patrick lockett and janet edwards and we were talking about their relationship with the sports that they've been involved in over the period of time and just who they are and what they've been doing and their background and some of their thoughts around it so it was very organic there was no absolute structure around it it was just the four of us talking together and bringing up some subjects to talk about. So we talked about Mondio Ring and 
Michael Ellis gave a history of Mondio Ring and how that came together through the ring sports, French ring and then Belgian ring. And then that sort of colluded to become Mondio, which was the love child of the two of them. And then gave a little bit of a design and architecture of where that fit into the world of protection sports and his involvement in it, how he became the first certified Mondio Ring decoy in the United States and the reason he got into his breeding program and so on and so on and so on. And then Janet went through the same kind of thing with PSA. We talked about her background and all the things that she did with Zuko and her achievements and how she's become the appointment of judges and she's won the Hall of Fame with herself and with Zuko and so on and so on. And then we went on to talk about how IGP originated from IPO, from Schutzen. It was great. It was a really fun time to have a group of people together to talk about the origins of these protection sports, how they came to be involved in them, their love and interest in them, and just a little personal bit about them as well. Yeah. you know, and their their timeline involved in protection sports. So very much appreciative, got great feedback through the comments, got some really good questions through the members. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all those guys and a lot of love and appreciation for their time in that as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. It's cool steps forward. And it's great that you guys were able to put together something like that so quickly after the in-person conference uh, had to be Hand. Look, to be honest, I've got to give a lot of credit to Melanie Benware and Linda Worthington and John Imler, the three of those guys, the board as well. Like there's always a lot of backs that get stepped on to pull things like this together. They really rescued something which was a dumpster fire and it's not their fault, it's COVID. Yeah, um, yeah. Something that they had to rip out of within weeks notice of people making flights and booking accommodation. It's just been a terrible pursuit of what's happened. But there is a silver lining to every cloud. And the board and those three people that I mentioned before primarily got off their ass and they really made something happen and got it together. So first day was a bit of a struggle. We were sort of learning the technology. It was late night for me and really early mornings. I hardly slept because I was nervous about talking to Uncle Bobby. And... Uh, <laughs> But so much credit to them and it's coming together really well. So last night, Narelle started, so she kicked it off and let me tell you, man, she killed it. She was yeah. absolutely brilliant. She's a researcher by nature. So she studied super it. Oh yeah, she's super prepared. She had all her slides in place. She elaborated on anything that was could have been or would have been confusing. I even saw one member write, I don't have any questions because Narelle's covered it so thoroughly. I think she got about 20 questions at the end where, you know, like people would jumping up on screen and well not jumping up on screen but Jeff Scarpino was reading it out and then following up that was Birdie so Birdie got on and she did her part in the psychology that she offers and how she's trying to help people in the industry I caught about 45 minutes of that and then I just faded and I had to go to bed so I'll Mm. I'll, uh, end up watching the reruns of it when the recordings come out I'll check out all the recordings for it just wasn't on the cards at the moment super proud of them they've both done so well they're they're such Great girls. It's a real privilege to have them in our lives. It totally is. Mm. So you've got something to talk about. It's a question that was raised through a follower of our Instagram or who also follows our podcast, but they got onto Instagram and they wrote up quite a detailed response. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to literally lead into the question they have is, does punishment work? Mm. Well, it has to. By the very definition of it, it has to. Mm. Uh, it decreases the frequency and likelihood of a behavior. That's one of the things that we sometimes see, and it's usually a pretty quick giveaway. I think I spoke about this uh, on the podcast one time when we saw a child psychologist, I can't remember what it was for, 
but she says to me, now we know that punishment doesn't work. And I, I said, stop. I said, you need to understand we are talking about a two-year-old. You are not talking to a two-year-old. Mm. So let's be realistic here. Now, the issue we had, I can't remember what it was. It was something Rip had like a, a little speech problem at the start and classic medical profession. What they did was we were seven sessions in before someone eventually said to us, the reason he can't say these words is because his vocabulary is so advanced. He shouldn't be able to say them at all. The fact that he can't say them properly is that's no surprise. I don't know why you're still coming here. And we're like, well, because the seven people before you took our money and passed us along the medical chain. But anyway, so when she said to us, this is a lady with her degrees on the wall and I'm a knucklehead, no education, knows nothing. And she said to me now, you know, punishment doesn't work. And I was like, hang on, hang on. Whether we want to use punishment is a very interesting conversation that we can have, but whether or not punishment works is not open for debate, right? Whether there's ethical dilemmas that would accompany it, sure, we can talk about that all day. Are there side effects? Is there fallout that can happen? Absolutely. Let's talk about that as well and put in mitigating strategies if that's what we want to deal in and be clear and all, there's lots we can talk about. But the moment someone says punishment doesn't work, especially when they have the degrees on the wall, they've proven themselves incompetent and not actually truly understanding what the subject matter is, in my opinion. When this original question popped up, I did inform the person that we have covered this in quite a few episodes. Like we have talked about this matter because it's something that it's basically like a daisy. It just keeps popping up all over the place. Like you think you've killed it in one section and then suddenly you'll come out and there's the daisy again. And that's the same as, as this specific conversation. And I'm totally on board with what you said. By definition and by proxy, when you actually see the evidence of it, you know that punishment works. But I think when you're talking about the ethics of human behavior and or human communities is do we want to be involved in certain types of punishment? And that's where the ethical dilemma always circles back to. You can't say punishment doesn't work, but you can say, I don't want to use certain types of punishment. That's okay to have in a conversation because that's more real. But telling people that punishment doesn't work is a complete fallacy. It's a lie. And anybody that's pursuant of that, they're ignorant or there's a degree of derangement there. If people are telling you that through a conversation, then walk away from them because honestly, they're leading you up the garden path. If they're telling you that punishment can cause problems, okay, there's a conversation we can have. If they're telling you that they don't like using punishment, okay, there's another conversation we can have. But by saying that punishment in itself, like the core of itself doesn't work, then that's a dead-end conversation for me. There's two very interesting conversations I think that can be had around punishment. And, and, and any time that anybody wants to open a dialogue with me and truly open a dialogue with me, not just tell me how it is, there's two ways that it can go. And I think the first is the technical aspect in that how can you be sure what you're doing is actually going to be punishment and punishment by the proper definition of the word, i.e. to decrease the frequency and likelihood of the behavior that preceded it, right? Mm. And so there's a lot of times that people attempt to use punishment and actually they use negative reinforcement for the very behavior that they're trying to get rid of. And usually that's when people would say punishment doesn't work is because they only understand punishment to mean pressure right? And let's just to stay in dogs. Let's stay very much within our lane. And people will often use the prong collar as an example. And the dog displays some sort of highly reactive, extremely motivated behavior that they don't want. 
and you know, let's get even more specific so that people can picture something. And let's say it's a Kelpie that wants to chase a bike, right? Because that's something that a lot of dog trainers might see. Uh, insert any dog, but a lot of Kelpies will do that. So let's say that. The Kelpie wants to chase a bike. Is bark lunge growling at that? And maybe someone decides I'm going to use a prong collar to punish away that behavior. So during the demonstration of that behavior, they apply pressure with a prong collar, pops, right? bang, 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 and the does not alter the behavior. The dog keeps going and the bike, you know, eventually leaves and eventually the dog settles down and the person gives three to five pops on the prong collar before eventually giving up. They would then turn to you or an observer would say to them, see that punishment didn't work. And the truth is that was not punishment because it didn't work, right? Mm-hmm. So because it, because it didn't reduce the frequency and likelihood of the behavior, it's not punishment. And so I think some people have it in their head that the application of pressure in any form is punishment. And, and there's lots of reasons why people may think that. And I think that at the core of it, the people who are so anti that and will attack you online, we've spoken about it plenty of times. There's no point getting into arguments over that with them because they've had an experience that's led them to feel that way. They probably had an abuser or something like that that has led them to feel that way about any form of pressure. And what's happening in that conversation is role play where they get to get back at the abuser and you're playing the abuser in that role play. So it's not healthy for anybody to be involved in conversations like that. But to unpack it, I would say that in that circumstance, when you the dog displays behavior, you apply pressure in the intent to use punishment and it doesn't work. You absolutely are not using punishment. That's a fact because it did not alter the behavior. The pressure that you're using is more likely interpreted by that dog in that moment as negative reinforcement because the dog was displaying a behavior. A pressure started. The dog either got more intense in the behavior or did nothing, continued to display the exact same version of the behavior. And then that pressure stopped because you reach your threshold or your limit or, you know, whatever it is that made you think, nah, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anymore. And it might be because, you know, in some instances, the reason people stop is because they just physically are not strong enough to do it anymore. Right. So the fact that the behavior either escalated a little bit, became more intense or just stayed exactly the same when that pressure was relieved means that that pressure was likely perceived as negative reinforcement and or activation for the behavior that you did not want. And especially when that behavior is an aggressive response, right? And in that Kelpie instance, it certainly could look like aggression, though it's more than likely prey. But, you know, in another circumstance where it really truly is aggression, what ends up happening is that the application of that pressure, which we've already established, is not punishment. It is just at that time, a physical input that is in the form of pressure, let's say prong collar, becomes an activator of the behavior that you are trying to stop. So the people who would say punishment does not work, what they're really saying is, you know, and they say, I saw a dog become more aggressive with the prong collar. Punishment doesn't work. What they're really saying is that I observed someone use the prong collar in a way that ended up making the aggressive behavior that was already there more pronounced. And that happened because the behavior was not altered via that pressure. In fact, it was strengthened. Mm. And so there's absolutely reasons why using pressure and training you might want to, and there's absolutely reasons why you might want to avoid it, but you need to do so with understanding and intent to have the outcome that you want. And as I say, from now on, you do enough repetitions of that with the Kelpie and the bike 
absent the bike, you're going to be able to give that Kelpie a, a tap with the prong collar and he's going to start acting as though the bike is there. He knows that by displaying that behavior, he stopped further pressure happening. And that's the misunderstanding that has happened between the handler and the dog. But it's not the fault of punishment and it's not the fault of pressure. Well, it, I guess it is the fault of pressure in that moment, right? And it's a misapplication or it's a misuse of the tool and it's a misapplication of it in that moment. Whew, that's my rant about it. Yeah, nice. Nicely said. I remember attending a discussion with Dr. Robert Holmes, who is a behavioral vet in Melbourne. And Robert used to come and lecture a lot on NDTF courses. And he was referring to like a case study where he went along to a home and uh, there was a lady that he was assessing a situation with her dog. There was an issue with her dog doing some form of behavior. I can't recall what it is because like this is 20 plus years ago. However, she made the comment, I remember this succinctly, but she said to Robert, I've corrected my dog but he's still doing the behavior. And then Robert said, well, I put it to you that you haven't actually corrected the dog. And she said, yes, I have. And he said, no, you haven't. You haven't corrected your dog. And before he got to finish, he said, no, Robert, I have. I've corrected the dog. He won't stop doing the behavior. And Robert said, look, please stop interrupting me because I need to tell you where this is going and why I'm insistent on this point. He said, had you have corrected the dog, you would have found that the dog would have altered its behavior, like changed its mindset about what it wanted to do and the objectives that the dog was trying to reach. This is a good discussion for people to have, and hopefully this wakes a lot of people up who listen to this podcast, is that when you're yanking on chains or when you're pulling on prong collars or slip leads or something and your dog is able to push through the pressure and get to the other side of that and it relieves itself and you find that you've got a bigger monster that you're dealing with. Yes, that's a problem that you've created by accidental design. Therein lies that issue that Robert kept talking about. You haven't corrected the dog because if you pull apart the definition of correction or the, the definition that we were using at the time is that a correction is anything that changes undesirable behavior to the desired behavior that you want. So it's basically you guiding the dog away from certain type of behavior and into other behaviors and can say that's, that's the definition of negative reinforcement because it is. But look at the application of pressure. Enough pressure is punishment over time. I put it on yourself. Like if you're at work, let's say you've got files on your desk and I've used this analogy quite a few times. If you've got files on your desk and somebody comes over and doubles that file size and says, we need this to get done by the end of the day. And you're already under duress because you're thinking that's a lot of work to try and get through. And then somebody doubles that workload. Well, that's a lot of pressure you're under there. And you automatically see that as punishment. Like you might start thinking to yourself, am I getting in trouble for something? Have I done something wrong? Does the boss hate me or something? So automatically, you know, when it's relatable to people and I'm relating to myself because you start conjuring up these thoughts like this is punishment. I'm unhappy. I'm not happy about this situation. But let's say we want to talk about negative reinforcement. And you've got a work colleague that comes over and goes, man, I'll take most of those off your plate. Like I'll help you out with that. And because they've relieved a lot of that sudden pressure that you're under, you're automatically so appreciative to that person by taking away that stress and that pressure from you. But everything can be related to pressure. I mean, even if it's sudden and it's rapid, like the form of an intense correction, it's still an intense amount of pressure at that point in time. I mean, it's more needle focus than let's say, for example, something where you're putting on pressure through a slip lead and that could be a cumulative. It's still happening quickly, but it's not happening at needle point. Like some are very quickly when you're talking about fast, rapid corrections and where you're giving pops on chains and so forth, whereas where you're applying a pressure on a slip lead or a prong collar, 
the accumulation of time is different. And some could say, oh, man, you're splitting hairs when you're having that sort of discussion. But when you're in the field and you're working with it and you know what you're talking about and you're talking about the application of, of swift, sudden pops as opposed to the application of slowly induced pressure, you're talking chasms of difference when you know what you're talking about as a trainer and as a practitioner. But getting back to Robert's point, when he was convincing this client of his point, you know, like he was talking about, you haven't actually corrected your dog because there is no change in the dog's behavior. You've got the same, or as you put it before, probably an increase in the undesirable behavior of the dog because the dog has worked through the concept of your belief that you've applied enough pressure to stop the dog, but the dog is not stopping. Pat, you made a really good point of this a while ago when you used the analogy of shooting people with beanbag rounds and rubber bullets and so forth. We were talking about drug-induced people who, you know, like you fire a couple of rounds of beanbags and they realize, oh, that hurts, but I can get through this pain. Now, all of a sudden, you've, you think you've got Superman who's resistant to bullets. And, yeah. and that's the monster that we can create through dogs. Now, when we get back to our original point and subject matter of does punishment work, Some people look at this and they just find this abhorrent. We're talking about increasing the amount of pressure that we're putting on a dog, either suddenly or over a period of time through negative reinforcement. And then they're thinking, well, I don't want to do that. And that's the point. That's the crossroad we arrive at or the split in the road where we arrive at with a lot of people where they go, I'm not prepared to do that. I don't like that style of training and that's not what I'm prepared to do. And therein lies the quandary of where punishment doesn't work because you don't want to use it. It's not that it's incapable of working. It's because you have an ethical dilemma around it where you're saying that's where I have an ethical issue with is that I'm not prepared to go to that level that the dog needs to cross the threshold where the dog's basically saying, okay, you got me. I don't want to do this behavior anymore. It's now undesirable. Or, you know, like I can see, so if we're talking about a positive punisher or if we get into the realm of negative reinforcement where you can convince a dog to leave a direction of behavior around and change the direction into a more desirable way where you relieve the pressure then. So when you get a shift of focus from the dog onto stimulus A and you get the dog onto your desired stimulus B, you then can relieve the pressure and show the dog, there you go. That's where I want you. And not only am I going to relieve the pressure because you've changed your mind from stimulus A and you're onto my by design stimulus B, I'm also going to give you something else as well. So I'm going to take the pressure away and I'm going to give you a reinforcer, something that you want. So the dog feels, oh, okay, well, now I can definitely see the benefit in performing this new behavior. Yeah, totally. And a couple of things on that. I think there's a line that, you know, I stole it from Bart and and there isn't a better version of this is that when you're using pressure, the difference between that punishment and negative reinforcement is that if it's negative reinforcement, the hope can't outweigh the struggle. So the dog will go through the, I'll go through that to get to the other thing. And then that's negative reinforcement, right? Like you, that's mm-hmm. how you promote to the behavior. But if the dog goes, no, that's too much pressure. I'm not going through that in order to get what I want. Then that's punishment because mm-hmm. you stop something, you start or strengthen it. And I think, as I was saying when we first started talking about this, I think there's two interesting things to talk about. And one is the technical aspect. And like I say, it's just not uh, open for debate. The evidence is there and the real evidence, as well as the anecdotal evidence, if you look at the people achieving things and the way they talk, is whether punishment and pressure work as motivators and demotivators, i.e. reinforces and punishes, 
That's not available for debate. That science is settled. The very technical way to do that is something you can learn. And it took me a long time to learn it. And I travel teaching it. And there's plenty of other people that know it as good and much better than me. And they also teach it, right? There's, there's plenty of ways to learn it. The other side is whether you want to use it, right? And that's, a, that's also interesting to talk about. But the conversations I just won't have is whether it works or not, right? Whether pressure works and the efficacy, there's no point talking about that. That's settled. Pressure works as a motivator or as a punisher, and it's effective. Whether you want to or not, and the circumstances in which you want to, that I absolutely enjoy talking about. And we'll have deep conversations with people who feel differently about it than me, because maybe they can change my mind, but they will not change my mind on the efficacy. But whether you want to and when and how you would want to use those things, that's very interesting. That's very much worth talking about. I was thinking about this pretty recently, you know, because this comes around often enough, right? Because I think it's the constant conversation that happens within our industry. It's the daisy. Especially amongst- it's what, sorry? It's the daisy. It's the daisy that keeps popping up in the field yeah. all the time. When we're dealing with certain types of aggression, I call that the onion. And when we're dealing with subject matters like this, I've now dubbed this the daisy because it's, it's a yeah. fucking weed that keeps popping up no matter where you go. Yeah. On my Instagram, you know, on all the reels that I post, you see my dog's wearing his collars and more often than not, on, on more of them than not, someone will comment something like, uh, there's the one that it was my opener for a while where Remy's healing next to me and then bites the camera out of Jazz's hand. She was filming for me that day, right? And someone commented on that like, I'm not impressed by a suppressed dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I can't. I some stuff about dog behavior. And there's some behaviors, there's some things, you know, there's some times where I've accidentally suppressed my dog a little bit. There's times you could read that. There are certain things and very technical people could look at some of the videos I do and go, oh man, I can see where he's a little un- unsure about that. Or, you know, there's, there's things you could say, but that's not fucking one of them, right? That's a dog with his tail up in the air like a goddamn scorpion and his ears happily up. There's nothing that you can read about that dog being suppressed in that video. There's absolutely not except that he is wearing a prong collar in the video, right? And someone's, yeah, I'm not impressed by that. There's another video where I have him, it was really about how if by accident I get the ball out of his mouth, I have to be really careful because I've taught him to, you know, immediately get it. And so I zoomed in on this video and put in slow motion where I accidentally popped the ball, like he was re-gripping and I pulled it out. And it was between, the ball was between him and my body. And I had to very quickly move my body out of the way and swing the ball down low because otherwise I would get bitten by accident, right? And I I zoomed right in on his mouth in that moment and you can see his prong collar. And someone commented on that. What was it? Like a real trainer would never need that hardware around the dog's neck. Sorry, didn't jump in on you there, but I've got a thought around that after listening to Robert Sapolsky talking about the actions of the amygdala and how it works on the brain. I actually now think that that is a trigger point that where people see it, their amygdala automatically lights up. This is my theory. Yeah. Okay, so their amygdala lights up because they've seen a prong collar and they can't shift their focus onto anything else because their amygdala is already oh, yeah. saying that's something that you're yeah. fearful of, that's something that you have a prejudice against, that's something you hate. Therefore, that's a fixation point for you and the conversation ends now because we can't focus on anything else. That's my theory. I'm going with that. Yeah, it's totally possible, mate. But what I notice, and there's tens of thousands of people who can out-train me, right, who are much better on the tools than me, and there's many of them who don't use 
any of these tools of pressure who have forced free trainers or whatever, like the plus R community, who can outperform me? Absolutely. But none of those people comment on my videos calling me a piece of shit for using those tools. <laughs> none of the people who can out-train me, and there are fucking plenty of them, are the ones that are commenting on my videos saying that I'm suppressing my dog or that I shouldn't be needing to use such tools. And I think therein kind of lies the issue is that the people who really understand it, I think, and you know, we could name them because we've had them on the show. They're the people who are, you know, the plus R trainers and don't get involved in that space. They don't complain about me doing it because they know that it, it's effective mm. and that it works and that they can, they can read dog body language and they're, you know, the ones we've had on the show anyway are morally sound people. They're not going to say that, that my dog is suppressed and make up some bullshit and tell their followers that knowing that that's just patently untrue. What they would say to me and to me in private is that they don't like to do that, right? Denise Fenzi is a really good example of this in that I still remember when she was on our show, she said that like kindness is the key factor in motivating her dog, right? And how she trains, right? She only trains with kindness. And that really stuck with me, man. And, and I've been thinking about that a lot. And it comes down to, you know, I have a very diverse group of friends in the real world. I, in the dog training community, I get along with a lot of different people as well from different areas of dog training, as well as with different techniques. Politically, hang out with people from the left and the right. I don't even know where I fall within that. I bounce all over the place on that. I think more than anything, I'm probably very left-leaning, but I have a lot of very right-leaning thoughts about stuff. The reason I get along with everybody in that space is because your actual opinion is far on how you would do things. Let's stick with dog training because we're a dog training podcast. Your actual opinion on how you would train a dog, whether you're going to use tools or whether you're not, whether you're going to use pressure, whether you're not, whether you're going to use punishment like positive punishment or whether you're not, that is only relevant to me. Your opinion is only relevant to me when I understand the motivation of that opinion. And if the motivation of that opinion is kindness and efficacy, I'm down. I want to hear it. And me and you can get along perfectly, even if your actual opinion is diametrically opposed to mine. If you're driven by kindness and efficacy, then we're going to get along fine and we can do things completely differently. But if you're driven by fuck you or driven by like hatred or you want bad things for me, then I'm absolutely not interested in your opinion. So. Let's step very carefully out of dogs and talk just say political space. I can get along with people who feel really differently than me about political issues if the reason they feel that way is they really truly think it's the right thing and they, they think that it's the kindest, best thing to happen. But if they're driven by they, they don't want good for someone else, then I'm fucking not interested, like absolutely not interested. Mm. So when people come at you and say, you know, you shouldn't have this, I'm like, fuck you, I'm not interested. But when they say everybody else should be sharing and there should be more for others, then that's interesting to me, right? And we can get along. And in the dog space, when people say you shouldn't be training that way, I want bad for you. And you see that people fucking, I get, I've gotten death threats and I'm just like, oh, I'm not interested, mate. Cause your, your motivation for your opinion comes from a dark place and it, it could be jealousy. It could be greed. It could be anger. It could be resent. It could be so many different things, mm -hmm. but I'm not interested in your opinion when it's motivated by that. 
But when people, you know, like Denise and it will just stop at her or Sarah Bruski is another great one to use as an example, right? Like two people I respect quite a lot and can train, probably train circles around me. The way that they train their dogs is from a point of kindness. And we don't have to agree on what kindness is. We only have to agree that you're wanting to do it. And the way that you would express that kindness is the way that you would train the dog. So for me, I think with my own dogs and you know, often the ones I encounter, sometimes using tools and using pressure to help communicate to them is from a point of kindness and that's why I do it. Kindness and efficacy. Because some dogs like my own, he gets wild and he starts making stupid decisions and he spools himself up and he just needs that like tactile feedback. Hey man, knock it off, get into this space. And that's the best way that I can communicate with him. And I feel like that's the kindest thing to do. And then you see other people with similar dogs who manage it in a totally different way. And it's because they think that the kindest way to do it is another way, right? Without using those tools and by, you know, whatever way they do it, right? We won't go into the details. And that's totally fine. We can get along fine. We can do things absolutely differently if our motivation for doing them is from that place of kindness and efficacy. But the moment that you start attacking someone because what they're doing is wrong, then it's from jealousy. It's from greed, it's from hate, it's from whatever your motivation. If it's anything other than that kind of significancy, I'm just not interested in your opinion. I just mm. don't give a fuck because your opinion is not one that I want to take on. Now you could hold the same opinion as someone who's giving me that that from a place of kindness and I will talk to them and not to you. You and that other person could agree wholeheartedly and I'll listen to them and not to you. If you're doing it because you're motivated to or bad for me, rather than good for the dog, I'm not interested. Whew, that's my second rant of this show. <laughs> <laughs> Again, a lot to unpack from that. There is an extreme amount of information in that. And I think that anybody who just listened to that last five minutes, there is so much to take away from it. Because I think that a large part of the problem, again, you know, this is recycling material that we've brought up in discussions before. Again, this is why I call this the daisy, because it is very recyclic in the way that it works. But a large part of the problem, and you tapped on this before, and I think that's a topic you need to be cautious about when you're talking about it, because it does involve some delicacy. But I think that there is a lot of people, and this is not just in dog training fields. I've heard this conversation do the conveyor belt in a lot of different subject matters. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking music or whether you're talking child raising or whatever it may be. But when people have had certain things happen to them in their childhood, which a lot of us have, there are an abundance of people that have had an unfortunate parental issues or they've had stressors in their life at some point in time. When that has happened or when you've had an abusive partner or anything like that, which I'd absolutely don't make any light of. And this is where people like Birdie and people in that field really excel in their own because that's where those conversations really need to happen. But there are other times where people probably, I'm not going to say definitely, but there are times where people probably think this terrible thing happened to me by somebody I trusted. I'm never going to allow that to happen again to anybody or to anything that I have control over. And sometimes maybe, maybe, it leads to a level of control. To be open, I had an abusive stepfather. Wasn't wildly abusive, like didn't bash the shit out of me, but he was cruel to me and my sister. Let's talk about me. So I'll talk about my story. He was fucking cruel to me, psychologically and physically at times. And to be honest, there were times where 
I wish things were different. And it did have a profound impact on me wanting to have children myself. I know I've said that before, but it did have a profound effect on me wanting to have children because I kept thinking to myself, I hate the way he treated me and I hated him at times for the way he treated me. And I wish that I could have stopped it. And I wish that I was in a a position of power and authority that I could have stopped that from happening. But I wasn't. I was a little kid. And I spent my life hiding from him most of the time or making sure that any time that he had these behavioral changes, I wasn't in eyesight of him, that I could make sure that I was away from him. So I think that actually shaped me into becoming very good at reading people and reading how they're changing and watching the shift in people's body language. Like, I mean, mate, I've got my fucking unwritten master's degree in watching human behavior. Like I can see things happening from people before they know it's happening because I used to watch him doing that. And I think it turned me into a fucking sentinel on watching how people behave. Now I'm telling some personal stuff, but I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not doing it for pity. I don't want people to write to me and saying, oh, I'm sorry, man, or anything like that. I've dealt with that devil. I've had psychologists and people that have worked through this over over years with me, and I've learned to deal with this and be more comfortable talking about it and realizing how it, it kind of fucked me up as a kid. And I didn't know why I didn't. I just didn't have that paternal feeling, but I always thought maybe I could become that monster. Maybe I could become him. And maybe I could do that to my child if I ever had a child. So effectively, I wanted to stop that from happening. Let me just say that I'm not just blaming him from this. This My biological father had input on this as well. You know, it was the rejection from him that had that issue as well. So I wasn't aware of any of this. And ultimately, that was part of this primordial soup that created my depression you know, like it sent me into a spiral. It was my biological father, my stepfather and my grandmother and other things that happened to you along the building blocks of life. So when I'm talking about this, this is why I'm saying I tread carefully through this process because I don't want to undermine other people and think that, oh yeah, you're talking about a subject matter that you have no fucking idea of and it's insulting. Well, let me tell you, I do have an idea of it. I got abused by a person that I trusted. There's no other way around it. And the worst part of the abuse came through the psychological abuse. That was the worst thing that fucking happened. That, you know, like he constantly undermined me. He used to, for some reason, and I think the cruelest part about it was that there were times where he could be so loving because I think he was bipolar in his own. He had a mixed bag of problems. I don't want to paint this guy out to be a complete monster because there were some times where he was so loving and so supportive, but there were other times where he was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and you couldn't determine who it was. And, and again, when people might be smirking about me becoming a master's in, in reading body language, I had to because I had to see where Mr. Hyde was coming out of him and sometimes it was so sudden you couldn't pick it. Like sometimes you'd be playing and it would spiral out of control from a game into fucking sudden punishment. You know, it would go into a sudden death round. This is why I understand where people are concerned about the use of punishment to dogs and their concern about the problems related around this because they felt this intense betrayal in their life and they don't want to allow this process to go any further. I'm not talking about that because, you know, certain things that happen when you're watching other people do things, they are in excess. Therein lies the problem. That's the point that I've been trying to get to is about a life in excess. 
and or about poor judgment in excess or even about judgment in excess sometimes. It's always about excess. It's the problem with excess. And when you're talking about punishment in excess, I fucking get it. I totally get it. Like I've had punishment done to me in excess. I've seen it done to dogs in excess. There are times I've done it in excess where I've had to pull myself up and thinking, hey man, you're crossing the threshold. Remember the issue that you said that you didn't want to happen to anybody else? You're doing this right now. Like you're crossing the threshold. The good thing is I can identify it and I understand it and I can pull myself back from it. It doesn't mean that I haven't slipped into that territory before. And that's the concern that some people have is what about when you slip into that territory? The problem is excess goes both ways. Excess can be in forms of, and the belief of kindness sometimes, and the the excess can happen in forms of punishment. Like you can be super kind to somebody sometimes, and it might be too much for that person. That particular person might not appreciate that level of attention that you're giving them sometimes, and therefore you're slipping into punishment. So from your yeah. point of view, it's perceived reinforcement but that's the issue. It's it's the perception around a lot of these things that people have. I'm not talking about anything here with any sort of psychological authority because we've well established in the past that neither you or I are authorities in the, the realm of psychology. And one thing that I do know about science and I appreciate, and I saw this worded really well the other day, is science is organic. It is the pursuit of the truth. And I really love that process. It's the pursuit of the truth. There is no absolutes about science. It is that, yes, this is the best information that we have right now based on the evidence that we know. And we're well aware of this too, and so is many people in science, is that when things change, when technology changes or when theories mutate into different areas, science has to be on the ball to say, okay, we're on this. Now we're looking into a different area because there's new possibilities presented with themselves. So sometimes when people say to us and they say to me and they've said to crowds before, you're not doing the right thing. We've got the science to back this up. Well, sometimes when you push people, the problem is, is they've got an opinion from a scientist, not fucking science around it. That in itself, when you keep pushing people, and I've seen you pushing people to say, give me the science, I've done the same, I've seen other colleagues do that, show me the science, present me with the science, like please let me read the paper that you're talking about, I'd love to know what you're talking about. And when you do unpack that paper that somebody's given you, the problem is, and this is where it's very disenchanting, is it's the opinion of a scientist. It's not the fact or it's not a peer group study where groups of people who may or may not agree with each other have all looked at something and said, well, you know, at this point in time, there is no moving past that. That, as Roger Abranti put it so simply, that's the fact right now. Right now, at this day and age, at this point in time, that is now the fact and a peer group can't go past that fact. When we're talking about these sensitive subject matters, this is really, I guess, where we need to settle on processes is when peer groups have looked at something and have said, now it's fact, then up until the time that that is disproven or there is new information, that's where we've got to rest our arguments on. So rather than kicking the shit out of each other and and despising each other, let's follow a path more about what you said before, and I like that, is follow the pursuit of kindness and trying to be a little bit more understanding and a little bit more forgiving. There are certain areas that 
I'm going to have a belief or an opinion on. However, there are points of times, and this this goes back into this contradiction suggestion that came up through one of the online reviews at some point in time. Well, there are times where I, I do have to stop the line of thinking that I'm I'm having and I have to change my mind about something because I can't ignore the fact anymore. And the more the older I'm getting and the more wise I'm getting, I hope I'm getting wise, wiser, at that point in time, I'm thinking to myself, how can I say that I'm a good person or I'm a wiser person if I'm ignoring truths and facts that smarter people are putting before me and saying, Glenn, it doesn't go past this point right now. It may in future, but right now, this is the stop in the road right now. This is unrefutable evidence and fact right here at that time. Okay, well, at that point, it might not fit in well with a group of people that I used to know and used to train with. They might look at me and saying, oh, man, you're turning into a lefty because you're following this advice. No, I'm not. I'm not turning into anything. I'm just following the fact. I'm now presented with something that's impassable. I can't pass through that anymore. I've now hit the end of the line at that point in time. I think I've rabbited on enough about that. What are your thoughts? It's heavy stuff that you just shared, man. It's a big thing to put out in the podcast, but I think it is super relevant because, you know, it shows where you've come from and how you come to the thought process that you have. And I think that's really it in that the difference between punishment and pressure in its you know correct forms as a as a guiding tool or an educating tool and the difference between abuse is when it's clear that it can be if it's negative reinforcement we're talking pressure it can be escaped and then avoided and if it's punishment then it, it can just be avoided right mm-hmm. so you know that's kind of i think people you know to, to just dip my toe back into that technical side one more time that's the difference between negative reinforcement can be escaped and then avoided in the future and punishment can only be avoided so long as that is the case and you're consistent and clear, your signaling is clear and your punishment is clear, you and your learner will be fine. Everything will, will be fine. They will learn and the relationship will develop underneath and there'll be no fallout. All the problems that people think come of punishment really won't happen. They just don't exist. The problems that people say come of punishment are not of punishment. They're of abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes it can be really difficult for the observer to understand the difference and the real difference when it has a pressure component or even if it's just psychological is that with punishment it can be avoided and exactly as you say you know with your stepfather like he would just snap and go at you without a trigger there was nothing you could do to avoid it right all you could do in that moment was try and escape it when it happened and like literally escape right so i think that's the that's the tricky part of it all i just want to insert something there quickly because I do have experience with this myself, is that when you have been impacted by something, and this happens with dogs too, we've seen this in behaviours when we go into systematic desensitisation, but when you are impacted by something and you have a sensitivity around it, what happens with that is the threshold lowers as well. So leading up to the trigger, you become quite sensitive to it. So you can develop a hair trigger towards it. So at the original point where you broke or where you, you know, you had a fracture in your personality, what happens, and I've seen this happen with other people before, is anything that's a hallmark that's even closely representative of that, their hair trigger activates and they activate very early on. So you nailed it, I think, before, Pat, when you you were saying that what people view 
as problematic from a trainer or problematic in a relationship between a trainer and their dog is something that is triggering them very, very early on. Like they're looking at that and saying, well, that's what I consider abuse. And Hmm. it may not be replicant of any type of abuse. It may be just a matter of controlling the relationship between you and the dog and helping the dog to understand a better pathway and a better course of action. However, to the observer, what they're seeing, and again, you know, again, thinking about this whole process with Robert Topolsky talking about the activation and the the unconscious activation of the amygdala. Well, that amygdala is built largely around fear, the activation of fear. And I guess if my brain was analyzed, I'd probably find that I have an overactive amygdala based on things that have happened in my childhood. And that's, this is a probability that is existing with other people as well, as they have an acute response from their amygdala. So when they do see things like this, automatically it's triggering fear and automatically it's bringing back problematic thoughts that have triggered from the past where they're thinking, well, this leads to this eventually. So I can automatically see a line of abuse that's going to happen here. Therefore, we have to put a stop to it. This is purely theory on my behalf. It's purely theory. But, you know, I think if we, you know, like if we dig around in that dirty water, maybe we'll come up with something. Yeah, we are out of our depth, but I I think that we can observe it. And yeah, we should look to wrap up. But one thing I did want to say, because I know that the question will come is I use tools, I use pressure and people say, I'm going to use a prong collar as positive punishment. How on earth could that come from a place of kindness? Well, it's because I think that people and dogs, raising kids, training dogs, even adults, we live in a very artificial world and there are things that you need to be communicated with to stop, right? Like there are behaviors that are not allowed because they're unsafe to you or to others. And I personally think with high drive dogs, especially the quicker I can communicate that, the quicker and more effectively I can communicate that to my dog, the safer I keep him and the quicker he gets back to doing what he would want to do. So if my dog is you know, doing something and it's, I'm not talking about disobeying commands, that's a different topic. But when he is doing something that is going to injure himself or someone else, as quickly as possible, I want to be able to convey to him, hey, you can't do that. There's plenty of other things that you can do, but that's off the table. And for me, that is the kindest thing I can do for my dog because it gets him back to working and doing the things that he does want to do as quickly as possible. Now, that's my opinion. That's not a fact. But there is no facts around this until we can start deeply communicating with the dog as clearly as we are now. Even then, when, when that day comes, and I'm sure it will, there'll be differences between dogs. Some dogs will be like, no, I can't imagine that would, that's terrible. I don't want that. And we go, okay, cool. We won't do that. We have another avenue with you. But with some dogs, like the type I like, that's what they like. They like that very clear instruction. And if there's a, you know, and I'll use the term that people get upset about, if there's a pain compliance aspect to that, they're totally okay with it because they're like, I just want to be chasing the ball. I want to be doing the things. I want to be working with you. I want to, you know, whatever it is that the dog's into when they're high drive dogs, especially. And the quicker I can communicate to them what not to do, the quicker they can get back to doing what they want to do. And I feel like that's the kind of thing to do. And that I don't require anybody else to feel the same, but if you do feel the same, I can teach you how, right? But if you feel separately, if you don't think so, there's plenty of people who can teach you other ways as well. Mm. Like, cause there's other ways that are also effective and they are just as effective, but they have different parameters. And those parameters are often time, you know, and for me, time is very important to the experience of the dog and the learner. So that's the thing from my point of view, to summarize everything I've had to say is 
the opinion of someone is really only relevant to me when I understand their motivation. And when their motivation is kindness, I'm very, very interested in their opinion. But when their motivation is jealousy, anger, greed, and you can tell that because you look at, you know, let's use the big world example. When people are like, hey, you know, social issues, I think there should be more money for the poorer people. That's fine. That's fine by me. Let's continue talking about that. But when people say, fuck rich people, they shouldn't have as much money. I'm like, I'm not interested anymore. You're like, because you're, you're interested in taking away from people, not giving to others, right? Now, there might be a component of having to take from people to give to others. But if your primary motivator is take from one, then I'm not interested, right? So it's like you can break that into every aspect that I encounter people with and the way I train dogs with. Mm. If your motivation mm. is the best for the person from kindness, I'm very interested in your opinion. But if it's not, then fuck off. I'm not interested. <sighs> I know we're close to wrapping up, but I just wanted to add to that. Again, it's, it's something we've recycled from an earlier discussion and I'm not going to do it great justice because it, I have nowhere near the sage advice that Uncle Geordie P has, Jordan Peterson for anybody that's not in the know um, or not related to him like you and I are. You know, <laughs> we used to talk about the likelihood of us getting to talk to Uncle Geordie as much as the likelihood of getting to talk to Uncle Bobby and you so have spoken with Uncle Bobby. I know. So we're up and up. Adrian Forsyth typed in a group chat. She said, oh, my God, you've just peaked. There's nowhere to go from here. And I said, not yet. Oh, Haven't got Uncle Geordie on yet. Yeah. Or Joe Haven't Rogan. Been on Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, That's when you Just to close off, like Jordan Peterson talked about this belief where people were talking about this, everybody is equal. And we're basically – under this belief of like a, well, primarily what communism is, that everybody is equal and you all get the same. However, his point around it is, what if I wanted to pursue somebody who wanted to be the best in their field, like the best surgeon? Wouldn't you like to have the option of saying there's four surgeons, these two people are primarily the people that I would like to get under to have my operation because they have excelled and they've pushed themselves. And it may be through monetary rewards or some form of, of lifestyle reinforcement that these people have thought the harder I work and the better I am, I'm going to get more accolades, more awards, more money. That's what pushes me and drives me. And his whole point was around, I want to be treated or worked on or the plumber that comes around to my house, that's one of the top people in their field, not some person who just grips by and just says, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have to work hard because it doesn't matter if you do or don't, you just get the same anyway. And he said, I don't want that sort of person working on my plumbing or working on my brain or working on my physiology or training my dog or et cetera. What I want to do is I want to have access to somebody who was rewarded and pushed themselves and that comes through various different forms of outputs, monetary, love, affection, fame, whatever it might be. But I too want to be associated with and educated by people that have pushed themselves and had reason to do so. I have no difficulty with that whatsoever. And that I think that really is something that, you know, like it's nice to be altruistic, but sometimes I don't know if I believe in as Sapolsky and other people don't really sit well with the whole concept of free will. I have, I've struggled with altruism sometimes. I just feel that sometimes that's a debatable topic. Well, I think equal opportunities is critically important, but equal outcomes is dangerous and impossible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I have made it 
abundantly clear when we're talking about how people behave in the canine paradigm discussion group is that we have a philosophy of everybody love everybody. And I think that's a nice process to work on. Treat each other with kindness and treat each other with respect and patience. And, you know, just pump your brakes a little bit when you can feel yourself getting a little mad sometimes and try and think about better outcomes. I've suggested before, there are times where I can see myself reaching for the keyboard and I've thought to myself, what you're about to do will probably come off as a dick move and it will be very unkind and it's very unnecessary. It's just that you're reacting to stimuli that you can walk away from and you just don't need to respond to it. There is no need to have a negative Glenn Cook comment up there just to make you feel better about it, which will ultimately, in all probability lead to a shitty outcome where you're just going to have to justify yourself and you're going to make yourself come off as a jerk. So rather than that, sometimes silence is the best outcome where I just think to myself, I don't need to comment on this. And there are other times, you know, on the flip side of that, where people have written really well thought out, really well placed points or arguments or discussions where I thought, In the past, I've thought, oh, I need to top that. I need to make something. I need to shine a little bit of that light on top of me. Whereas now I look at it and think, let that person bask in their glory because they earned it because their fucking answer was sensational and there's no need to say anything further around that. In fact, I'm going to steal from that and or I'm going to borrow that person's response because I really love what they did there. So the older me now looks at it from that way. Because fundamentally, I'm surrounding myself with better people, such as yourself. Even though you're a lot younger than me, you have a, a very mature and very analytical way of processing things. You've had good mentors in your army career and, you know, the people that you've surrounded yourself with. But it helps me to become a better man or a better human being. Um, and just one <laughs> thing, one thing I did want to quickly close on, I talked about some heavy shit with my stepfather before. He, like me, and like every other person that walks this earth, I know that there are people who are fundamentally deranged and there are some people that just are beyond help. But in all essence, I'm neither a good man or a bad man. I'm just a man that is respondent to certain situations. Sometimes people will view me as good. And on the flip side of that, there'll be other people who are on the other side of the wing who view you as bad. And that will always ebb and flow depending on the onlooker. So you respond to certain things, you behave in certain ways. Some people love it and it falls within their interests and some people despise it. And they automatically look at you as a jerk or an idiot or an imbecile or somebody that's now become their new nemesis or whatever it is. Sometimes there's no control that you can have over that. As much as you would like to, there is very little control of things that you can affect in that. Now you might think, well, I'll alter my behavior and try and make those other people love me. And sometimes that's a miserable pursuit as well. So I think that, you know, the thing that I'm learning about, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but when I'm trying to analyze the meaning of life for me, it's just try not to leave too much of a shitty footprint on the world. Try and do as much good as you possibly can. And just remember that it's not going to be appealing to everybody and that's okay. Just do the best you can. Mayor Angelou said it best. I've said that quote so many times. Go look it up. All right. I'm wrapping it up. Yep. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from and then go to another one. Truth is, the best thing you could do to support the show is just tell a friend. Pass this episode on and say, this dickhead Australian bloke said a bunch of stupid shit. Look how, look, 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 <laughs> look how stupid 
players. Get them into it. Get them listening. And then maybe they'll I don't know, form an opinion of their own. You could also jump into Patreon. Patreon is plodding along. I'm still yet to make that other video about what is in there and stuff. But as often as I can, I'm putting in interesting slash educational content. There's a massive backlog of that information. We go live in there a couple times a month in within the different tiers. There's plenty in there, but the truth is what you're doing is supporting the show and making it possible. Within the video I want to make, I want to show where the money goes. We've never actually taken any of the money out. We only buy stuff to make the show. Yes, it's never uh, been to- a wage. It's always been to produce the no, show, to pay the bills. We got jobs. We make money other ways. The, all the money that you guys contribute goes to increasing the quality and the type and nature of our deliverable, which is the show. Yep. And you know, I'm happy with that we're doing that. And it still is amazing to me that I'm sitting at my house and you're at your house and we're talking to each other on identical setups because we've got one here and we've got one there that allows the show to continue going at a, a reasonable, as best quality as possible, in spite of the fact that we're doing it remotely, not in person. The other way you can support the show is rep cool merch jump into teespring teespring buy yourself a wall tapestry or a t-shirt or some underpants or some socks or a hat assuming we have all those things and you look at you look look at you you're wearing the dogs playing for life top we're not even wearing our own merch you're wearing that and i'm wearing dog person that comes from marissa and zoe oh yeah that's right sit pretty apparel sit pretty apparel i've got a top from them that they sent out some merch for us Yep. We're actually quite spoiled, the amount of people who send us merch from there. Absolutely. Yeah, so training gear and tops. There's so many kind people out there. You just get a little package at the door. The Buffed sent me a um, Einswick putty the other day, so thank you very much, Jace. It's a one too. It's lovely. I love it. It's beautiful. I've, I've just about living in it. It was fantastic. Mm. If anyone wants to send me stuff, I've got a P.O. box. I'll put Send me whatever. I've got a top-down rig. I can do unboxing stuff. The only thing I've unboxed is my kid. I, I did a video where I like put him on and I had the top-down camera. So, anyway, yeah, send me stuff. I'll unbox it. I'll cut it open. I'll- How about send us stuff? Us. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's, there's us, two of yeah. us in this show, dude. I sent two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> should be careful what we say. I, I jokingly said that I wanted a Yeti dog bed once and someone, Horny George, was like, dude, I'll buy you a Yeti dog bed. <laughs> Like, dude, it's a joke. I can bite my own Yeti dog bed. I haven't yet, though, but I'm getting it at some point. Fuck that kid's um, getting handsomer and handsomer as he gets older. Unbelievable. Yeah, he's a it's ridiculous, good looking Californian kid. And if you want to get in contact with us, group source some information, jump into the Facebook group, be kind to people in there, and you're on track. But if you want to reach out to me and Glenn individually, do that, or you could shoot us both an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye. <laughs>